0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another edition of the Trap Draw Podcast. I am Randy. Right from the start, I want to thank our sponsor for today's episode, Mar Shoes. Right now, using the promo code T D15, T D15, you can get 15% off your entire order, plus a free set of custom bearings at Riomarshoes.com, R-I-O-M-A-R-Shoes.com. Uh, they have a wide assortment of really good loafers, topsiders. Uh, it's a perfect shoe. It can be as casual as you want it to be. It can be, you know, you can dress up and wear them out to, to more fancy engagements. I know we're not getting out of the house a whole lot right now, but perfect. If, if you can go play golf, perfect to and from the golf course, even for uh, evening strolls around the neighborhood. The shoes feature waterproof leathers, uh, breathable, odorless lining. They're 100% handmade. And like I said, they have customizable bearings that you can, you know, they have, they have a whole assortment. You can buy certain patterns or color combinations, whatever whatever floats your boat. So right now, listeners of the Trap Draw, go to Riomarshoes.com, R-I-O-M-A-R-shoes.com. Use the code TD15, TD15. For 15% off your entire order, a free set of bearings, and if you have any questions about sizing, they have really good sizing on the website, but uh, they're happy to exchange your shoes if, if the size you select doesn't quite work for whatever reason. So don't sleep on this rare opportunity to get a discount. Thank them so much for their sponsorship. And now on to my conversation with ESPN College Basketball Analyst, author, speaker, avid golfer, uh, really a, a renaissance man of sorts, Jay Billis. Good afternoon, Jay Billis. This is, uh, this is such a thrill to talk to you. How are you today?
1: I'm great, Phil. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan.
0: Well, thank you. That's, that's very nice of you to say. Hey, where I want to start, my first question for you. When I say the name Jay Wayne Jenkins, what is your first thought?
1: What is my first thought? Yeah. Big fan.
0: Do you, it's, do you know who that is? No, I don't. Oh, it's Jeezy. That's what, you,
1: that's what you say when you don't know. <laughs> exactly. Big fan. That's Jeezy's real name. Is that right? I didn't know that. Yeah, I knew his first name was Jay. I didn't know I didn't know Jenkins was his last name though. Yeah,
0: sorry. I, I wasn't. I I thought you might. I I didn't want to put you on like that. But yeah, that's uh, that's that's. I I'm a big fan of uh, Jeezy's as well. So that's that's where I Are wanted you really? to start. Yeah, yeah.
1: He's, he's a good dude, man. I really like him personally, and uh, and obviously I'm a huge fan of his music. I did not know Jenkins was his last name.
0: Yeah, Jay Wayne Jenkins. So when you um when you happen to listen back to the episode we're recording right now, our bumper music is actually Standing Ovation by by Young Jeezy. Um, that i knew he, he he doesn't he doesn't know that so we're <laughs> we're uh we're we're trying to keep that from him um not keep it from him but uh trying to stay off his radar a little bit
1: but yeah we're i don't think he'll have any pro- <laughs> i don't think he'll have any problem with it and i don't think he'll his lawyers will be sick on you i wouldn't worry <laughs> about it
0: well if we need counsel maybe we'll give you a call
1: you can't afford
0: it <laughs> um so I, sorry one more question it sounds like have you met him
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, when, you know, when I started all that stuff on Twitter, it, was, it must have been... Uh, it was back when he was called Young Jeezy before, before he went just, just with Jeezy. Uh, I, you know, obviously a fan of his music and listened to it. And so when I started doing the Gotta Go to Work tweets... Um, he had reached out to me and, and some of his people, and then I, he, they, they would, he would reach out and say, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm dropping a new album or I'm dropping this, <laughs> dropping that. Would you mind being the first one to put it out? So I did that. And then, uh, on a couple different occasions we've, uh, we've met and, um, uh, uh, I think there, there was, uh, we met in New York once where, um, I think it was, I can't remember if it was Vibe or Complex or a magazine did a, uh, uh, had me come in and they were ostensibly going to do something on sort of the gotta go to work tweets. And then they had Jeezy come into the, to the, uh, to the sound booth and surprise me. And then we did a little Q and A together. So that was really cool. Uh, r- really fun.
0: Nice. Is that, I, I got to look That would that be on the, uh, would that be on the internet? like a YouTube video. Oh, yeah, or something? You can find it somewhere. Okay. Um, All
1: right. I, it's been, I was up in New York for the NBA draft. So it's been a good five, six years that, that we did that, maybe a little bit longer. And then, uh, uh, and then the last time I saw him was about, I would say about six months ago, uh, in the get up studios up in New York. Uh, I was up on, on Mike Greenberg show there working during basketball season. And, uh, and Jeezy was up there to promote something. So we, uh, we got together in the green room, hung out for a while.
0: Fantastic. Uh, last question on Jeezy, and then I, I have—I promise I have some other stuff I want to ask you about. Is there one verse? I know this is probably a hard question, but is there one verse that stands above uh, any others of his?
1: Uh, one, of, one of my favorites is, uh, uh, Summer's mine, winter two, popping bottles in the club, that's what winners do i don't pop bottles in the club as much as i'd like but i like the i like the lyric. i like the idea of the lyric
0: the sentiment's nice right (laughs) (laughs) um yeah you've you've provided myself and and countless others with uh lots of entertainment so uh I, i appreciate you sharing those stories that's very cool that you guys have met i did not know that um I wanted to, if you don't mind, I want to talk a little bit of golf with you. This is, after all, uh, allegedly a golf podcast. But I was hoping you could indulge me and and we could talk a little basketball, if if that's all right.
1: Basketball, golf, you name it, those are my two favorite sports. I won't tell you in which order, but those are my two favorites. Well, perfect, perfect.
0: Um, If if you don't mind, my my first question, if if we're talking basketball... How did you get to Duke uh, growing up in Southern California? What, what's the backstory? How, how did uh, Coach K and Duke get on your radar?
1: Yeah, just from recruiting me. So I think I was a sophomore probably in 79, 1979, 80, and I started getting uh, letters, recruiting letters from different schools around the country. And, uh, and then I started getting letters from Duke. Uh, was one of the schools, and I, you know, I had heard of Duke because they played in the '78 um, Final Four, the 1978 Final Four with Mike Jaminski and and Jim Spinarco and Gene Banks, Kenny Denard, those guys. Uh, so I I knew of Duke, but I, I honestly didn't know where it was. I didn't know it was in the state of North Carolina. I didn't know, you know, the difference between Durham or Chapel Hill or anything. Uh, but the more they recruited me, uh, and the more I got to know Coach K, the more I liked them and. When I was coming out of high school, um, I didn't have a particularly great experience with my high school coach, so my, my recruiting was, was less about picking the school I wanted to go to and more about picking the coach I wanted to play for. Uh, so uh, I, I picked the, I, I, the schools I came down to were the ones where I liked the coaches the best. So I came down to four schools. Um, D- coach K was at Duke. Uh, Jim Beheim was at Syracuse, uh, Lute Olson was at Iowa back then, and then uh, Ted Owens was at Kansas. So those were the four, my final four uh, uh, schools to choose from, and and the truth is, I just honestly I liked Coach K the best, and that's why I went to Duke.
0: And, and there's, I would encourage anybody listening, if they haven't seen it, there's a wonderful 30 for 30 documentary called The Class That Saved Coach K, which talks about your um, recruiting class. I, was it a, a difficult transition uh, going across the coast? And I, I imagine, you know, leaving Southern California for, for North Carolina had to be a, a little bit of a, I, I don't know, culture shock maybe?
1: Yeah, it was definitely an adjustment. Uh, Durham, North Carolina. Like when when the plane landed, uh, I had never been to the East Coast before I was recruited. Um, you know, I'd been been to the West Coast and all that, but never never been up and down the West Coast and to uh, Vegas and different places like that, to, into Mexico. But I'd never been to the East Coast, and you know, when you landed in Durham back then, they used to they used to push the 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 stairs up to the plane. You know, it wasn't it wasn't like this big time. Um, the Raleigh Durham Airport wasn't this big time airport back then, so uh, and then you know everything was closed on Sundays back back then. Uh, not just Chick Fil A, everything was closed. <laughs> um, so it was just a it was a different different time and sort of a different, it, it, obviously a different culture. But the truth is, Phil, I was so busy all the time um, with school and basketball that I didn't have a lot of time to, to feel homesick. It wasn't until the season ended that I was like, I can't wait to get back to California. I wanted to go home so bad as soon as the year was over, uh, the basketball season. And uh, and so back then there wasn't, you know, you didn't you didn't go to summer school unless you were a dumbass, you know, kind of uh, needed to get back on track. So I went home and just played summer, you know, summer league basketball. Uh, but it was nice. I don't know how I'd feel right now, honestly, if, you know, now these, these players are there year round, they, they go to summer school, uh, everybody goes to summer school to get ahead and all that stuff and to work out, uh, cause their coaches want them there to work out. Uh, but if I couldn't have gone home, I needed that break to kind of get a little more California, uh, time. And, because uh, I, I would have really struggled if I couldn't go home during the summer.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, basketball specifically then, I so I had the opportunity to speak with Terry Gannon uh, a few months back, and he, of course, played at North Carolina State, and one of the things...
1: Yeah, we played against each other. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, I was going to say, you guys overlapped, I believe, three of... Three of your years, I, I think maybe he was a year ahead of you, if if my uh, if my math was correct. But I, I asked, yeah, and I
1: had my first paid broadcasting gig with Terry. He oh. and I, um, he was the, he was the host of it, and I was like, a, I don't even know what you'd call me. I guess we were co-hosts because you wouldn't have called me an analyst for that. But it, we 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 co-hosted the the uh, coverage of the Duke Children's Classic, that charity golf tournament, uh, and th- this was like thirty years ago. Um, something like that, 25, 30 years ago. Uh, that, that was the first, kind of really the first paying broadcast gig I had, and it was with Terry.
0: Yeah. Well, where I was going, I, I asked him, in his opinion, where was the hardest place to play in the ACC, and, and he told me North Carolina. I'm, I'm curious if, I, I know, of course, the Duke-North Carolina rivalry, but I, I'm curious if, if you felt the same way, um, if Carolina was, was the most difficult place as a, uh, as a visiting player for you.
1: I thought the I thought actually NC State was the hardest place. It's called Reynolds Coliseum. Uh, they played in Reynolds back then, and it was it was a lot like Cameron. It was gritty, and and the fans were pretty nasty. Um, Carmichael was awesome. Um, you know, we, we it, it, I played I actually played in the first game in the Dean Dome. That was in 1986, my senior year, uh, and we were the number two team in the country, I think. And North Carolina was number one. They, they didn't finish the Dean Dome on time. They were supposed to finish it at the end of the 1985 season, but it went into '86. So we didn't play. The first game in there was Duke versus North Carolina, and it was like in the middle of January. And uh, we were 16 and 0, and they were 17 and 0. It was kind of an extraordinary thing when you think about it. Yeah. But they used to play in Carmichael Auditorium, and that's what Terry was probably talking about. I don't think Terry Terry was a year ahead of me in school, so he never played in the in the Dean Dome. Uh, but they're, they're both awesome. Um, and, and, uh, I I think Carmichael was actually a lot more like Cameron, uh, than, than the Dean Dome. But, uh, I mean, you know, the teams you were playing against, what made it really difficult was you were playing against Michael Jordan and Sam Perkins and Kenny Smith and Brad Doherty on on the same team. That, that, the the crowd might've been difficult, but it wasn't as difficult as those guys were to play against.
0: Was Carmichael, did they keep it? He, he was... He was talking about something weird in the visiting locker rooms.
1: It might have been. I don't really remember that part of it. Um, The the worst locker rooms were at Maryland because they kept the heat on, and you knew they did it on purpose. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, back then you didn't have. There were a lot of weird things that happened, and Terry probably didn't tell you. Like at NC State, they would they would give you know they would have a a different ball for you to warm up with than you actually played with in the game. (laughs) You know, stuff like that—that that, you know, uh, opponents did weird things back then that they could kind of get away with that you probably couldn't get away with now. Um, so yeah, it, it, it was a different different era, um, but but it was it was great. I mean, playing in those games was uh, was fantastic, especially the level you know the quality of player and the level of play.
0: Yeah, uh, were, were you a talker on the court?
1: not really um you know there really wasn't as much talk the guys who did a lot of talking stood out and uh uh there wasn't a, there wasn't as much of it as there is now and the players weren't as friendly as they are now um not not they you know we didn't get in fights or anything but uh but you didn't have a lot of back and forth and guys didn't know each other as well as they do now because all these guys play AAU ball, and it's national. And, and you know, so they, they, uh, they keep in touch with each other via text message and the different social media things that we didn't have. So there was a lot more standoffishness between player or among players back then. Uh, and you had, you had weird stuff like alternating introductions where, you know, you'd, you'd, uh, they'd call out the starter for one team, you'd run to center court, and then they'd call out the, sort of the counterpart on the other team. And you know uh, when we would play Maryland, you'd run out there and you'd hold your hand out, and the, some of the Maryland guys would take a swipe at your forearm and slap you on the forearm. Instead of like giving you know slapping hands, they would slap you on the forearm, and it hurt. And they were doing it just kind of getting get in your head. And uh, uh, you know, it was that kind of that kind of stuff happened? And um, you know, there was a lot of guys that. Um, that were, you know, would, would do stuff to antagonize you, but it wasn't as much trash talk as, uh, as I think there is now. Yeah.
0: Uh, this might be a, a, a dumb question considering, you know, you've, you've mentioned Michael Jordan, but I was wondering, in your opinion, who the best college player you played against was.
1: Yeah, it would be Jordan. There were three. Uh, Michael Jordan, Ralph Sampson, and Len Bias were the three best. But I mean, there are so many others. You know, Mark. I played against Mark Price and Brad Doherty and Detlef Shrimp and all the all these guys that went on to be, you know, NBA All Stars and and truly great great players. Uh, but but Jordan stood out like he was the most dynamic player. He and Bias were the two most dynamic, and uh, and Jordan was the first time that I had ever played against Relentless. You know, like you'd heard the term, somebody would you throw it out, say, oh that guy's Relentless or something. Well, that was the first time I'd ever played against relentless and, and I hadn't played against true relentlessness very often, but he was relentless. And, uh, but, but he wasn't as, uh, unstoppable. He was unstoppable, but he wasn't quite as unstoppable as Sampson. Like the, the fact that Ralph Sampson only played in one final four, and I think it was his sophomore year, is kind of hard to imagine because he was, he was the best player in, in college for a number of years and was a great pro until he got injured, um, and, and people don't remember. I think just how great he was, uh, and you had to change everything you did in order to just to have a chance to to slow him down a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. So I've, you know, I, I try to watch every Len Bias documentary. Um, there's there's another thirty for thirty uh, about him as well, but I, I never got to see him play. Uh, but I'm always like one of the things I love to ask people yourself, Terry, is I, I just I love to hear you guys describe his game uh, for, for somebody like me who, who never saw him play. And I, I, my addendum to that would be, you know, do you think he was destined to be one of the one of the all time greats that we think about um, in terms of his professional career?
1: The answer is yes. I think he would have been a, a, a perennial all-star and would have been a Hall of Fame caliber player. That, that's how talented he was and how good. Um, you know, and People like to debate, was he as good as Jordan and all that? He might not have been quite as good as Jordan, but he was right. He wasn't far off in college. Uh, he was a, a really powerful athlete, so he, was, he, was, he looked like Superman. And he jumped like Superman, but he wasn't a one-footed jumper. He was more like a Dominique Wilkins-type jumper where he's a powerful two-footed jumper and uh, and was just a fabulous jump shooter, like he was a great shooter. And every year he was in college, he got significantly better, uh, like significantly. So our, our freshman years, we were the same year in school. Our freshman years, we averaged about the same amount of points. I actually shot a better percentage from him from the free throw line, the field, all that stuff. Well, that was the last time that ever happened. And then he took off, but he kept getting better and better. And By the time he, was, he graduated, he averaged like 24 points and, uh, and shot like 80-some percent from the free-throw line. It was absurd how good he was. And he, he, he scored 41 on us. We, we were good. We were number one in the country. He scored 41 on us in camera, and we couldn't, we couldn't stop him. Um, and, and just a ultra, a really good guy, too. I mean, I had never heard, uh, and a number of our guys were from the DC area. They were friendly with bias. None of us had heard anything about sort of any, any sort of drug use or anything like that. So when he did die, when he passed away, that that came as a surprise and a shock to all of us. Um, and, and his passing uh, in, in 1986, uh, right after the NBA draft, was was the equivalent for for me of of I think my parents knowing where they were when when president kennedy was assassinated. It was one of those things where I'll I'll never forget where I was, I'll never forget the feeling. Uh it's still very very fr- uh, fresh in my mind even though it was was so many years ago.
0: Mhm. Well, I, I appreciate you uh sharing those insights and uh, uh talking a little bit about them. Are you involved at all in the uh, the Last Dance, the new Jordan documentary coming out later this month on ESPN?
1: No, I, I haven't even. I've seen some of the promos, but but I haven't seen uh, I haven't seen it yet. I'm looking forward to it. I think it's a ten part uh, something like that, a ten part series, and it's going to be you know weekly. Uh, I'm glad they moved it up. It'll it gives you something to look forward to. I think it's April 19th it starts. But I'm I'm really geeked up to see that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, here's here's a, a question from you, and I'm, I apologize if it's kind of opening a, a wound here, but I, I am really interested to hear, uh, it's about 35 years now from the 1986 title game, um, your, your senior year, you guys lost by three to Louisville, what sticks with you from that night, um, and does, does a loss like that, do you ever get over a, a defeat like that?
1: If you give me another 35 years, maybe. I haven't gotten over it yet. Um, we, we, what I remember about the game, I still haven't watched it uh, uh, from, from that night because um, I, I, I for some reason I just don't really want to. Um, I, I remember that we shot the ball really poorly, for, especially for us. So we shot the ball like our, our field goal percentage was in the 30s uh like thirty eight, thirty-nine percent, something like that, and uh and Louisville shot over fifty percent. And still we we only lost by a by a bucket. And you know, it wasn't anything where you're going, okay, well we got screwed or the referees did this or you know, there's nothing to complain about. It was just one of those games where we didn't play as well as we and Louisville was really good. You know, they were certainly a worthy champion. But you know, being completely honest, do do I think we were better than them? Yes, I do. And we'd won 37 games that year. Our only losses were at North Carolina, where they were, you know, first game in the Dean Dome, and we lost by two. And uh, and they were number one in the country at the time. We lost uh, to at Georgia Tech when had Mark Price, John Sally, Dwayne Farrell, Tom Hammond's that whole crew, and we lost to them by a bucket uh, at, at Georgia Tech. Uh, but other than that, we won every game. We played a really good schedule. I played, we beat everybody, and the only team we didn't beat was uh, was Louisville, um, and that that was that was really hard to swallow, because I think we would have been that team would have been considered among the best teams to play, and uh, and not having finished it off was a was a difficult, you know, difficult ending. But um, you know, it gave me a lot more empathy for like I, just being completely straight if we had won that game i think my attitude about things would have been well you know that's what well, that's what champions do you know they win and you know i i think i would have would have taken it as a given but you know, when when I see now, like uh, uh, something happens where you know somebody jars one out of a bunker and Greg Norman doesn't win this major or something like that, I'm a lot more empathetic to uh, to the runner-up than I used to be, uh, because because having having had that that experience, you're going, man, there is there's a fine line between you know sort of winning and losing in the, in those in those games. And uh, we were on the wrong end of that fine line, but it was still a great experience and, uh, and one that I, I cherished and was very grateful for.
0: The, the fickleness of single elimination, um, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely something. Fill in the blank here. When I say college basketball is blank compared to 35 years ago.
1: Oh, it's better. Uh, College basketball is better in a lot of ways now. Uh, The only thing that's not better is the players don't stick around for as long. So uh, you don't get the same experience of of being able to follow your team and the the players and get to know them like uh, like you used to. Uh, But the players are better now than they've ever been. Now, that doesn't mean that if Michael Jordan played now, he wouldn't be the best player. He probably would be. Uh, Or or Ralph Sampson or Tim Duncan, you, you name it uh... the greats would be great in any era but but the players now are better than they've ever been and uh... and they're especially when you consider how good they are at age eighteen coming into coming into college and the fact they can jump right into the nba and be competitive is is truly amazing uh... the, the game overall is more physical now than it used to be uh... even when i played people like to say it was more physical back in the day i don't know what it is about our you know, like older people, but my friends and colleagues will, will oftentimes say, Oh, the game was so much more physical. I'm like, let's go back and watch the film. Cause it's, it wasn't, <laughs> <laughs> it just wasn't. Um, and, and uh, you know, I think if, I think if older people, if, if the stopwatch hadn't been invented, I think older people would argue that Mark Mark Spitz swam faster than, uh, than Michael Phelps. <laughs> that's just the way people do it. They 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 want to think it was better in their era, and the the overwhelming majority of the time, it wasn't better back in the day. It's better now.
0: Yeah, but that's what makes you know that's what makes those uh, barstool discussions that that much more fun and, and interesting. I guess uh, I've heard you like you would be the perfect person if college basketball ever had a czar or commissioner. I, I think your name would absolutely be on a short list for a position like that. And so, in a hypothetical world where where you're named commissioner of college basketball, you, your first week on the job, would you have? What are your biggest priorities, or, or what would you most like to see um, changed or implemented uh, straight away?
1: Well, if I were just dealing with on the court, I'd I'd, I'd make the rules unified uh, and and you know, I'd improve sort of the, the, the play on the floor through the rules. Like one, I'd go to a 24 second clock um, because basketball is a game of quick decisions. And the longer the clock, a longer clock is for coaches that is not for players and it is not for fans. And every time that we've, we've either gone first with a clock or reduced the, the, the shot clock um, the coaches have complained and said, the game will be ruined and it's always gotten better, and it would be better at 24. Uh, you know, FIBA plays with 24, the international governing body. The NBA plays with 24. So kids in Europe play with a 24-second clock, but our players couldn't handle it. Of course they could. Uh, we've already moved the, the, the three-point line back. I would move it back to the NBA distance, and then I would widen the lane to the NBA and the uh, international distance to, uh, for spacing reasons. And then I would call the game, uh, I would have the game officiated uh, closer, uh, like it used to be, frankly. Um, w- w- college has gone through, in the NBA, a freedom of movement initiative. Uh, the NBA has worked. College has kind of worked for a little while, and then last year we did, we, it went, went backwards. But, um, you know, if you go back and look at old games, uh, college, NBA from, from 30 years ago, 25 years, the games were not as physical. There was a time in the NBA when it was ridiculously physical, you know, when the Pistons and, you know, Pat Riley's Knicks and all that stuff, where it got completely out of hand, scoring went way down. But uh, I think they fixed it to, to the point where, where, where now the players can, can actually play and you have to make a defensive play um, instead of uh, manhandling someone and fouling them. Uh, and so I would change that. And the only off court thing I would change is I would allow the players to, uh, I would allow the players compensation. If, if the school wants to provide compensation, if they were just like with any other student, any other person, if they and if the player wants to accept, uh, um, endorsement money or all that, they could, they could do that. I, I think that would be easy to implement and it wouldn't change anything in the least. But, hmm
0: and uh, honestly, that's one of the things I, I most admire uh, about you is your willingness to lend your voice and your platform uh, to, to be kind of a voice of of, of the players uh, in, in college athletics. I, when I was prepping for this podcast, I, I came across that you were a part of the NCAA Long Range Planning Committee while you were at Duke, I believe for three years, and I am Curious if that experience at all shaped you know, your opinions today, or, or was that formative in, in any ways? I imagine it was.
1: It absolutely was, Phil. Like, like it, it let me behind the curtain to see how the sausage was made, I guess, and, uh, and I didn't like it. Um, so I learned about NCAA policy, and, uh, and I learned about how the system worked. And back then, you know, I, when I was on that committee, I was 20, 21, 22 uh, years old. And the people I worked with on that committee were fantastic. I mean, they were just amazing administrators and couldn't have been better to me. I mean, Wayne Duke was the commissioner of the Big Ten, and Bill Flynn was at Boston College, and Dick Perry at Southern Cal. I mean, they they treated me like a king, Uh, but they didn't they didn't agree with like they didn't. Every time I brought something up that was you know player related, I got shot down immediately in a nice way. But they did they didn't (laughs) take one thing that was advocated uh, sort of seriously. But, but uh, back then, um, I, I was a member of that committee and I was a party line guy. So we, I kept everything that was said in those meetings confidential. And whatever was decided, I, I parroted the party line and went out and, and you know, created a unified uh, front. And I knew what uh, everybody wanted to hear, not only the, the administrators on the committee and within the NCAA structure, but the people on my campus, whether it was you know, our president or uh, athletic director. I, I knew you know, sort of what got rewarded and what didn't, so I didn't say publicly what I thought. Uh, and, but later on in my career, when I had the responsibility of covering the sport and covering the NCAA, uh, it became clear to me that I couldn't. How could I, you know, sit at a basketball game and criticize an official or criticize a player for making a mistake or criticize a coach uh, without opining on. NCAA policy when, when I was covering that. And so that's where it all came from. I just decided at one point early in my career that, you know what I'm going to say, they're asking me to say what I think. I'm going to say what I think, and I'm going to do it respectfully and hopefully say the right thing at the right time and the right tone. Um, And, and, but, but that's where this came from was sort of, uh, this is my job and my job is to opine on these things and I'm going to do it. And if people don't like it, um, we can talk about it, but, uh, I, I just don't, I, I don't go with the theory that, Hey, you work for a company that, uh, has a contract is a, is a broadcast partner with the, with the NCAA. So therefore you should shut up. Mm-hmm. I, I don't buy that. And uh, if my boss wants me to shut up, if my bosses tell me to shut up, I'll shut up because they're paying me. <laughs> but they haven't told me to do that, so I don't see why I have to.
0: Well, I, I for one, am very appreciative, and I, I know a lot of people are. Um, do you – this is a good segue. One of the things I wanted to ask you is um, do you think the NCAA, you know, administratively, the, the way it's set up and – I don't, maybe I should include some major college athletic programs here as well. Um, are, are they equipped? And speaking really of college basketball specifically, I, I think football is a, a little different animal, but in your opinion, are they equipped uh, to survive the next 5, 10, 20 years? Um, I, I, and I asked that thinking directly of the NBA G League and whether we'll see you know, the G League swallow up that upper echelon of of college basketball at some point?
1: Yeah, that's a very perceptive question. Will it survive? Yes, because it's a multi-billion dollar industry and because the tournament, the NCAA tournament is not going to stop being the sort of multi-billion dollar property that it is. Uh, if the talent level changes throughout college basketball, if it take it, because it's a gambling event, mm-hmm. it's a three-week uh, rite of passage in our culture that is not going. It's not going to take The tournament itself won't take a hit. Uh, the game overall will, if the talent level goes down uh, significantly, and I think I think we could be approaching a time frame where that happens. So, if we go back to uh, high school players being able to bypass college and go directly into the pros, like we had for a period of time up until about two thousand six, two thousand seven, I think it was, when the when the quote one and done rule came in, uh, that would mean that the game would no longer have Zion Williamson or uh, Derek Rose or Kevin Love or Kevin Durant, you name it. And there's no way that, 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 that uh, the, all those players bypassing college makes college better. There's no way. Um, you know, now people, my age may say, well, you know, then it gets back to what, what it used to be. Um, no, it doesn't. It's just, it, it would just be different. Um, and people forget how screwed up college basketball was uh, before the one and done rule came in where there was no certainty. The NBA didn't like it. You had NBA scouts and high school gyms. We'll have to go back to that again. But if the, the, the the NBA is not stupid. They run a great business and the G league is going to become not only a viable alternative, I think for some of the top prospects, maybe even most of them, it'll be uh, preferable because you can concentrate on basketball you can make money, and then you can uh, put yourself in a better position while you are making money to enhance your, your NBA career. Uh, I, the, the problem I have with it uh, is, from a, from a college standpoint, the NBA should do whatever, whatever they want to enhance their business. That, that, I don't have any problem with that. I don't see that as a threat. I see it as an opportunity. And college, is, I think, makes a huge mistake, the NCAA, by not protecting their own interests and doing what's best. And indulge me in this, but, but like, I happen to believe that, that college is a great thing and education is a great thing. Well, if, and the NCAA seems to, all the member institutions and the office in Indianapolis, that, that seems to be their mantra. College, come to college. But all we do is put up barriers for athletes, in college and and you know if a if a player expresses uh, the the willingness to test the waters to go into the NBA they make it difficult for the player to come back if not impossible and wh- why would we limit a player that goes into the draft maybe gets taken at a spot he doesn't like why shouldn't he be able to say well you know what I'm not going to I'm not taking this I'm going back to school uh, we don't let him in. We said, "Well, you've expressed your uh, your desire to be a pro, so we're not letting you back in." That that doesn't make any sense to me. The only thing amateur in America is golf, and and an amateur golfer is not in a like amateur golf does not bring in billions of dollars. It is not sold to television for billions, uh, and and the golf coaches aren't making, you know, m- millions upon millions of dollars. Um, that's the only thing amateur. But the difference between golf and, and college basketball and college sports in general is an amateur golfer decides whether he or she is going to practice, whether he or she is going to play in an event. You, know, you, you can be an amateur golfer and say, well, you know, I'm not going to play in the USAM this year because I, got, I have a wedding to go to, my brother's getting married, or you know, I want to do this, I want to do that. Uh, you don't have to practice if you don't want to. Uh, you know, I would have liked to have seen Coach K's face if I said, "Hey, I'm an amateur. I don't think I'm going to go on the Clemson trip." You know, you're going, man. <laughs> that's a mandatory. Those are mandatory games and mandatory practices. Um, so there's nothing amateur about college sports. Uh, golf is the only thing I know of that's amateur,
0: and and that's to say nothing of you know what what grinds my gears. And I've purposely avoided calling college athletes student athletes because I hate the the. The spirit of how the NCAA uses that is almost a shield. But, you know, hurting these top level athletes into, you know, the, the, they condense them into the same, you know, couple majors. They, they don't allow for academic freedom. And so I, I think it's, it's, you know, it, if you're really about academics, they, they don't, as you said, they, they put up barriers even for these top, Top athletes to explore uh, their their full academic interests and potentials, in my opinion. So I, I no, that's, I, exactly, I wholeheartedly that's, that's agree a, with a Great you.
1: point, and it's exactly right. And it, it's like, uh, but those are, are that's a result of putting a rule in, thinking that you can stop something that you didn't like. So so one player uh, a player flunks out and is still eligible, or, or fails a course and is still eligible. Well, we don't like that, so we're going to put in. Ah, uh, something called an APR. So if you drop below this APR, then you're not going to be tournament eligible. Well, all that does is is tell the schools, well, don't let your players take anything difficult because it puts you, it threatens your money, and and you're going to lose APR points. So they they won't let them take the more challenging courses, and they put them on the easier path. Uh, and that's not what that's not what college is supposed to be about. But, but the rules make it such where the enterprise is protected and, and it, it, it's done to the detriment of the, uh, of the athlete at times. And it's not, look, it's nothing sinister. They, they mean well. It's just it's a dumbing down of the system. And your point is great about student athlete. When I was on the long-range planning committee, I brought that up, not for, the reason, not, not for the reason most people dislike it, but I said, well, why, why do I have to be called a student athlete? You know why? Like when I'm in school, I'm a student. When I'm playing, I'm an athlete. Like, why, why? You know, nobody, no, no professor I've ever had has said, "Yes, the student athlete in the back." You know, <laughs> they don't do that. And uh, uh, so, but, but that was put in, as you know, just because of uh, workers. They, they NCAA wanted to uh, stop workers' compensation claims uh, back in the in the '70s and '80s, and and that's where the uh, that's where the term came from.
0: Yeah. Um, after your playing careers. Concluded, you came back to Duke uh, and enrolled in in Duke Law School, and and also was you were an assistant coach uh, for four years on some really exceptional Duke teams, two national championships. Was your intent uh, to pursue a career in coaching, and if so, when did that when did that change for you?
1: Yeah, it was my intent. Um, after my third year of playing overseas, uh, I got a call from Coach K, who asked me if. Uh, I had applied to Duke Law School um, thinking that, you know, if I if I get in, I can defer it and then keep playing. But I wanted to be prepared in case, you know, like I got I got hurt or you know, just decided I'd had enough. You know, you're playing overseas a little different than playing in the United States. You never know uh, um, how things are going to go. So um, when Coach K had called me uh, over the summer and I told him, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, I'd, I'd really like to keep playing professional basketball. And he said, well, you probably ought to take a look at this. And he said, he said you, you know, told me about, you know, going to law school at the same time and doing both coaching and, and going to law school. And so I thought, you know what, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good idea. And so I, I took him up on it and, uh, and never regretted it. But after getting into coaching, I thought, you know, I'd really like to do this but when i came to the end of law school um i got married and and my my wife who we we dated for a long long time and we talked about what's the best thing for a family, for our family. And we didn't think coaching would be the right call because you'd probably have to move every every four or five years, and that's if I didn't screw it up and get my ass kicked. Um, you know, If you want enough where you wanted somewhere else, um, you'd have to move every five years in order to get to the level or the job that you really wanted. And uh, we figured, oh, I don't have to do that, so why don't we why don't we look at something else? So I went into I went into to uh, the law. I became a you know full time lawyer, and then did broadcast work on the side, and that's how my broadcast career got going. Was I just did games on the side, and one thing led to another, and I became it became a career.
0: Do you have an urge to coach? Do you think you'll get get into it someday? Get back no, into
1: it? No, not not now. Um, I, I I had some offers over the years. I never made them public, but I had a couple different offers to go. You know, one one was a uh, not a power five, it was a power six head coaching offer. And uh, and I just decided that, you know, I, I I wasn't the right time. My kids were in high school, and then I had another another offer uh, from an NBA team. Uh, it was a front office thing. And just thought, you know, um, if the timing wasn't right. If it came around again, now that my kids are out of college and, and out in the working world, I don't know. It'd have to be awfully good because broadcasting's a pretty good gig um, and I enjoy it so much. And it gives me, you know, like it gives you the off time to do what you like to do during the summer, which is play golf. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't be playing as much golf if, uh, if I, you know, took one of those jobs.
0: Uh, who's been the biggest influence on your broadcasting career?
1: Well, the people I work with, I've had so many great uh, sort of mentors um, that have been uh, great producers for me. Uh, one is, uh, is Lee Fitting, um, who uh, I worked with in college game day. He was a, a producer for game day football and basketball and was the first sort of game day producer I ever worked with uh, who's just got a tremendous sense for things, and he, he's been a, a great mentor of mine. Um, a guy named Barry Sachs. Uh, Dave Miller, uh, who, who may not uh, guys, all these guys may not be well known to the general public, but they're, you know, they've been giants in in the industry for, and especially for me. And then uh, the guys that I've worked with uh, on air, um, one is uh, Reese Davis, who is the best teammate I've ever had in anything. He's been a profound influence on on my career in such a positive way.
0: Have you spent? Uh... <laughs> So, have you spent any late nights with Bill Raftery? Is he is, is he, um, I, you know, as fun as he seems? Just uh, from listening to him on air.
1: Yeah, he's more fun than, than he seems, and he <laughs> seems really fun. Uh, I've spent many, uh, many an evening into the morning hours with Raft, and we worked together for, I don't know, a dozen years, maybe give or take in, uh, on Big Mondays, and with that, that trio of Sean McDonough, Raftry and me. Yeah. Uh, and so we, we've had a – and I've known Bill since I was in, in college. Uh, he, he, was, he would do our games in college at times, and, and just a fantastic human being. Um, and I, a, a, a treasured friend. And I know everybody that knows Raft feels that way. Uh, but, yeah, well, I've had more than, more than a few nights out with Raft where, you know, like I miss, you know, now that he's at, at Fox – uh, you know, I miss him all the time. The only the only part of my body that does not miss him is my liver, which has made a made a, a startling comeback in the last few years. Well,
0: I, I treasure I treasure the moments when the uh, when the team loses the tip and they open up in a zone. Th- those are among my favorite moments of of the college basketball season when he's calling the game.
1: Two three zone with man to man principles. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. I, I laugh out loud every time. Um, well, let me let me have you put your analyst hat on. You've you've alluded to it a, a number of times. I'm I'm curious how the the analyst Jay Billis would describe uh, your personal golf game.
1: Uh, my personal golf game, um, I would I would describe it as uh, as poorly poorly conceived. Like I'm a <laughs> I'm like a nine handicap, uh, and and that's been trending down. I was much better f- five six years ago. Um, but uh, I, you know, I'm I'm six eight, so I'm probably not built for golf. But I, w- I, I would play every day if I could play. Um, I love playing. I love everything that comes with golf. Um, I, and it's odd because I did I I did not like golf growing up. My dad played. Uh, when I was a kid, and my brother, I have an older brother named Dave Billis, who was uh, uh, seven years older than me, and my brother was a champion golfer. Um, He and John Cook, uh, our dads were members at the same club in, in California called Rolling Hills Country Club and john and and my brother dave played against each other for the club championship each year when they're like 15 16 years old and uh and really talented golfer so my dad tried to get me to play and i didn't like it because they're they're got all the rules and don't walk here <laughs> and be quiet and don't do this and no you can't do that and that's a penalty and i was like i'm, I'm out of here i'm not nobody ever tells me this on a basketball floor or you know, I, I know what I'm doing in those areas. So I didn't play until I got uh, out of college. And that's when I started playing, when I was uh, working out at Duke, when I was playing overseas. Um, and my, my friends and I, we'd work out uh, during the day and play, play basketball and lift and all that stuff. And then when we had nothing to do, we'd go to the Duke golf course and play golf and gamble. And that's how I got into golf, was, uh, was playing with my friends.
0: The Wash Duke course is phenomenal too. Um, but but t- tell me what, what what in your mind? What's the strength of your game? What what's the weakness? Do you are are you a guy who you know you, you got to hit the bottom of the cup eighteen times around, or are you kind of fast and loose with the rules? G- give me a sense of uh, give me a sense of, of what you're like on the course.
1: Well, I, I I used to have a pretty smooth swing, but w- when I started having back problems, that's been that's been a little bit of an issue for me. Is now I'm kind of over swinging, but I you know I have a decent game. My short game's not very good; uh, it's sort of hit or miss. Um, but you know I, I, I hit it okay, uh, and as I'm getting older, I'm not as long as I used to be, but uh, but I just love playing. Um, but I'm I'm kind of your standard nine handicap. Like I can go out and have a really good day where I shoot in the you know, mid low seventies, or I can have uh, a day where I can't break 90. Um, you know, it's one of those things where you're just not going you know, for me, where I'm knocking it all over the place. Um, I, I, but I, I, just, it's one of those things where, where it's, it's, it's a, an escape for me. And, I've gotten to the point where I've got, I've had so many close friends that play and so many of my friendships are from playing. Like we, I joke with my buddies, like would we have any friends if we didn't play golf? Because all of our interactions are around golf. We plan (laughs) golf trips. We get together and play golf. We have a couple beers afterwards. Like all of our stuff is golf related and we'll go play and then have our wives meet us for dinner or something. Uh, but I was like, geez, if I didn't play golf, would I have it? Would I even have any friends? I don't know if I would. Do you have
0: a favorite course?
1: Yeah, Pine Valley uh, up in New Jersey is my favorite his favorite place I've ever played. The first time I walked on it, um, that's the finest piece of dirt I've ever walked on. I just think it's, it's magnificent in every way.
0: And how about a course that would be number one on your bucket list, a place you haven't played yet?
1: I've never played Pebble Beach. Um, I, I've, I've been so lucky through my brother, my friends, uh, to play all these like bucket list courses throughout the, the country and, 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 Scotland and Ireland, things like that. But for some reason, growing up in California, I never played, I've never played pebble beach. And, uh, and so I would love to do that. Uh, but heck I, I, I grew up right, uh, right near Los Angeles country club and I, I must have passed LA country club a thousand times going to play basketball, whether it's UCLA or places in Santa Monica. And all that. I didn't know that existed, uh, when I was a kid. And, and when I walked on that golf course for the first time, I couldn't believe it. it is like central park in there. And, uh, in the middle of Los Angeles I had no clue. So I'm still, I'm still kind of learning about all the great places to play that, uh, that years ago I didn't, I didn't even know it was there.
0: That, that, uh, that hits home so so much with me. I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um maybe a mile or two as the crow flies from i if you've heard of it camargo country club uh, an old seth, seth Raynor course and yeah d- drove by there thousands and thousands of times and and never appreciated you know uh, why it was such a good golf course and finally had occasion uh, i was lucky enough to get on a few years ago and it's yeah it's like oh wow this <laughs> this was right in my backyard the the whole time growing up but um Well, I I have just a a couple more questions. If you don't mind indulging me, I'm curious, you know, we're all kind of in in the quarantine life right now. Um, Is there, are there any new hobbies or skills that that you're working on or how do you you fill your time um, at the moment?
1: Right now, I've been probably for the last three weeks, two and a half, three weeks, I've been wearing out that Peloton uh, bike. So I do that at least once a day. Uh, I've already done it twice today. So I'm, I'm, you know, probably be in the Tour de France when I'm done with the, <laughs> with this quarantine. And then I'm trying as best I can, you know, because basketball season uh, normally would not have ended uh, by now. I'm am trying not to move on to you know hoofing it for the NBA draft and getting ready for that. I'm going to wait another week or two to kind of dive into that stuff where I'm where I'm spending most of my time on that. So I've been I've been actually just trying to take advantage of hanging out with my wife and, and my two kids are or our two kids are at home now even though they're they're older and they were you know different states working uh, and I've been trying to as best I can to catch up on all the all, all the TV uh, that my friends have said oh you've got to watch uh, Better Call Saul or have you seen Ozark or you know I, so I've been watching that stuff and uh, you know I've been blowing through it pretty fast too because once I get hooked on something uh, I uh, I watch it, you know, go right on to the next one, and uh, you know, just finished Narcos Mexico, which was awesome. Uh, so I've been doing stuff like that, just kind of normal, normal stuff, and and just trying to stay in shape as best I can.
0: Yeah, we've uh, I don't know if you get Hulu at all, but there's a a show through FX that I know is on Hulu called Devs D E V S, which uh, I. My coworker DJ and I are are really into. Uh, so if if you're needing another show, it's kind of sci-fi ish. Um, kind Don't of check it out. Yeah, kind good. of dy- dystopian uh, sci-fi. Um, I, I was going to mention you're you're a best-selling author yourself. You, you wrote the book Toughness: Developing True True Strength on and Off the Court. I imagine you have uh, a pretty good reading list. I'm I was interested in in what you might be reading now, or or some of your favorite or more formative books that that you've read through the years.
1: Yeah, I'm reading a book now called uh, "Thinking Fast and Slow" by uh, by Daniel Kahneman, uh, who is a, a Nobel Prize-winning economist, and uh, it's it's interesting. I got I gotta dig through it. Um, I haven't gotten very far. But uh, it's really, really an interesting sort of book about, um, you know, there's a psychological insight to it that's really cool. Um, and and I, I recently reread an old book that, uh, that I really liked by uh, John Kennedy, uh, John Kennedy Tool called uh, Confederacy of Dunces. I just I, I read it when I was in, in college and I just wanted to reread it and I, I enjoyed that
0: fantastic I, I have to mention I don't know if you like Michael Lewis at all but it, when you're done oh, with very much yeah when you're done with thinking fast and slow he wrote a book called the undoing project which is about the friendship of uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky uh, and, and how oh is
1: that right yeah'll yeah. I'll, I'll check that out because I'd love to love to follow up what I've done with this thing and uh, lewis you know lewis as you know wrote moneyball which which changed you know changed so many things once that got out you know changed basketball changed baseball changed everything
0: how do you, and I, I apologize, I, I wanted to work this into our basketball conversation, but now that you, you mentioned moneyball and analytics, wh- what do you make of the analytical revolution in basketball? And I, I'm thinking specifically in the NBA with, with the free throw, you know, layup three-point mentality, and uh, the, the Houston Rockets and James Harden are, are the poster childs for it. But um, do you <laughs> – I, I hate watching it. I, and I don't know if I'm just you know old and crusty or, or what, but but I was I was interested to hear your opinion on on you know that style of play and where the game might be heading.
1: I think it's the natural evolution of things. And you know especially in games, people are going to try to figure out how to uh, game the system and how to, how to win when they might not have be the best player or have the best players. And, uh, you know, I actually uh, compare it to golf, honestly. Um, I don't know how many years ago this was now, but I, I spoke at the U.S. Junior Am when it was at Shoal Creek in Alabama. I think, I think uh, Jordan Spieth was actually in that one. It was in the crowd when I spoke, and he was probably one of the first guys to fall asleep while I was talking. <laughs> but when, when I was sitting down at the dinner that night, uh, I happened to, to be seated next to Hubert Green um, who, you know, won the, won the U S open. I mean, what the hell am I going to talk to Hubert green about? I mean, you know, he could have been nicer, but I asked him, uh, uh, about, you know, I'd spent the day on the golf course watching, uh, watching all the players, you know, when their practice rounds and I, and Huber green was out there as well. And I said, what, what did you think of these, these young players? And, and I was astounded by his answer. He said, none of them know how to play. And I was like, "Really?" And he said, and "He says all they do is they haul a driver out and they hit the ball 320 yards, wedge it on the green, putt." And he says, "There's no imagination, there's no uh, skill, there's no this, there's no that." And look, I, I, I didn't, I, I didn't disagree with them or differ with them there, but I didn't agree in my head. I was sitting there, going, "You know, these guys shot like 63 or 64. <laughs> like, what do you want them to do? What would you do? Um, they, they, they can hit it that far, and you know, why wouldn't you do it that way?" Um, I think there's a, there's a feeling now in golf that, yeah, you hit the, the, hit the ball a mile and then you, know, uh, you can wedge it out of the rough and do all these different things with the equipment you have and the equipment's different and all, the, all these things we complain about because the game is different. It's different than it used to be. But these guys are phenomenal players, and of course they're going to do the math on, on how they can best get the ball in the hole with the least amount of strokes. And there, there's, there's analytics in golf now that, that we didn't have years ago. Um, it's changed baseball. Uh, you know, they, people don't bunt anymore. They don't do the things, you know, the hit and run. And uh, it's totally changed, and it's changed basketball. Um, but if, if it were easier to win shooting mid-range jumpers, somebody's going to shoot mid-range jumpers and win. Or if having back-to-the-basket low-post guys is it, going to win, they'll do it. Um, this, is, this is what is going to win right now. And until things, uh, you know, maybe they figure out a different way, um, I don't have a problem with it. I enjoy the hell out of it. I, I've loved watching all the different evolutions of the game. Uh, I think it's great. But, um, you know, when we brought the three-point shot in, like I, I still argue in, uh, in meetings. I'm on the competition, the NCAA's competition committee, and still argue in meetings that um, sort of the idea of, of fouling, uh, fouling a player uh, on, a, on a common foul when he gets free throws and you're like, wait a minute, like, if, if, if I foul somebody, I've taken away their opportunity to get, um, to get a three-point shot, and you're giving them a one and one Like, I, I've argued for the elimination of the one and one And people will say, well, you, you have to earn that second free throw. I go, why? I had the ball, and you fouled me. You took away my ability to get a three, and you're making me earn my second free throw? That's nonsense. And, and, but, but all these rules were put in, when there was no three-point shot and we haven't adjusted our thinking to the three-point line yet. And uh, uh, it w- we're still evolving there too. And, and we'll see if the game catches up to some of this stuff. I think it will. But but I've really kind of enjoyed how how different people have gone about trying to figure out the best ways to win. I I think that's a good thing overall.
0: Yeah. And, and that's, it's, first of all, that's an interesting point on the, on the free throws and, and the fouling. I, I had never considered that in in that respect. Um, I just hope it doesn't get to the point of, you know, if if everybody goes in one direction, it, it kind of becomes homogeneous in a sense that, um, you know, it, it gets a little boring. I, I I'm, a, I'm a huge baseball fan, and and I, I often wonder if if the major league product now is. And again, it's so hard because it's like, am I just being a grumpy old man? Am I just remembering fondly my youth? But it's like, is the game today with the shifting and the, you know, the three true outcomes uh, better than what it was twenty twenty years ago when I was, uh, you know, when, when I was just kind of coming to baseball? And, and so I worry about in the sense with basketball, um, and I don't know what the answer is. I you know, I, I guess the the natural reaction would be as everybody piles into one way of doing things there will be people that then go a different way and, and try to figure something out so I, I hope so I, well, I yeah
1: they they will they will and I think those are all good good questions and good points um i I think we always have to be vigilant I think golf's done a pretty good job of that of of trying to uh, make adjustments when they're needed, like like pay, pay attention to how things are going and what needs to be adjusted and what, you know, do, do we need to make courses longer because of, of these bombers or do you need to make the fairways smaller or grow the rough up or, you know, whatever it is, mm-hmm. There, there are a lot of different ways to go about it. And just to your point in basketball, like I, there's a lot of there are a number of people that complain now that they don't like watching uh, Houston because of the way James Harden uh, does things, <laughs> and like that's only one team, so not everybody's doing that, and not everybody's and like Golden State. There, there, there are different ways to do it, and so we we we, we do see differences, um, but like you know I've argued games take too long now. And it's all—it's almost the same argument in golf. Like golf takes too long; mm-hmm. it takes too long at your local club. And I think the pros are, are have some responsibility there because, you know, it drives me nuts when my friends will walk to both sides of a putt, and then and then uh, you know they'll do it when it's their turn instead of do it when somebody else is putting. Um, when it's your turn, hit the ball. Um because you know if, if you block to both sides and you make it, you won't hear a thing from me. But you know, you, you can miss it just as easy looking at it one way. I right. mean, we're not pros, but the pros take all this time, and that filters down to the amateurs. And golf now takes too long in my my humble opinion. But basketball, and I've argued this for a while too, like you know, think of, think about this for a second, see if this doesn't make sense. If I'm taking, if I'm going in for a layup, and and you come over and foul me um i have to walk to the free throw line and make two free throws uh and like i've argued in some of these meetings like why, why are we making having two free throws? why is not it just one free throw for the value of the shot you were fouled on so if i foul you on a three-point shot you have to you know you make one one foul shot you, it's for three points make it miss it that's it and they're like oh no we can't do that like, why can't we do that like, why do I have to make three shots because you fouled me on one? That, does, that doesn't make any sense to me. And those are some of the ways that the game takes freaking forever. And we can start fixing some of these things. Uh, years ago, like 50, 60 years ago in college basketball, if you got fouled bringing the ball up court, uh, you got one free throw. Yeah. And, uh, and then then when you got to the sixth free throw, then you got a one and one And, you know, these rules didn't make sense then. Why would we think they make sense now? And I don't know how old you are, Phil, but when I was younger, uh, when I was a kid, the NBA used to have a rule, three to make two. When you got fouled, you had three free throws to make two. Hmm. Do you remember that? Have no, I, that?
0: I'm so am w- 36. I was born in 1983. So the and that's yeah. So, y- so
1: yeah. that was before your time. But but they used to have a three to make two thing. And you're like, come on, man. These guys are pros. They don't need three free throws to make two. It's taking too long. So you used to have to watch Will Chamberlain for like I can still hear Chick Hearn saying, "All right, if, uh, Chamberlain fouled three to make two, You know, and you're like, "Holy cow!" <laughs> uh, but but you know, the rules evolve in, in all these different sports. And, uh, and hopefully basketball will, will, uh, will continue to look to improve because, uh, because I think it needs it. I think all these games do, whether it's baseball and uh, uh, relief pitchers or you know, golf and the amount of time it takes or enforcing uh, slow play rules, all, the, all these different things, uh, or how they handle uh, you know, if something's picked up on, on, a, uh, on a broadcast as opposed to the player calling it on himself. Uh there are all different ways that that things can be adjusted and improved.
0: Yeah, yeah. I uh yeah, just listening to you like I never realized I, I was reading a book about the nineteen fifty one City College of New York NCAA championship team and NIT championship team. And uh I believe back then, you know, you, you shot on a on any foul you shot your free throws and you retained possession. It's like I had no idea. Yeah, you know, that was <laughs> that was a rule for a while in the NCAA. Um but yeah, it, it's so weird because my whole experience with basketball has been with a three point line. And so I, I think it's it's often easy to just get in the mindset of like, oh, this is how basketball always has been. But you know, talking to folks like yourself who lived through that transition, it's like, Oh yeah, you know, we could easily keep changing the game and make it evolve and and hopefully Hopefully we do that. Hopefully, you know, I I, I hope the game kind of keeps up with with what is needed. So I I appreciate that insight. Um, But my last question for you, and and I'll let you go. Thank you so much, uh, is I I just want to know how satisfying it was for you when you stuck it to uh, the Barney people in in that lawsuit back in the early 90s. (laughs) Yeah,
1: well, I don't know. It it was – you know the 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 Barney case I was representing a costume manufacturer <laughs> that was uh, was selling uh, these costumes that looked exactly like Barney and th- this was back when my kids were little so you, you had to listen to that Barney stuff all <laughs> all night you know and all day when the kids were at home or I was home and then when I was doing that case I had to listen to it all the time at work too so it was <laughs> difficult but um, you know the 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 people that owned Barney uh, were just doing a the, you, know, you have to protect your trademark and copyright. So when they sued my client, uh, it was expected. It wasn't a big deal, but they they wanted so much to settle the case because they wanted to make an example out of them. We had no choice but to uh, to try the case. So it was actually kind of a, a good case for a lawyer because um, you could try the case without, e- even if you lost, it wasn't going to be, uh, the number wasn't going to be as high as what they were asking for in settlement. So... Um, but, we, you know, it was a little silly to walk into a federal courthouse and argue about Barney the Purple Dinosaur in front of a federal <laughs> judge, which I had to do for, I can't remember how many days the trial was, but the other side, it got a little contentious, and I wound up, they, they treated this Barney costume, uh, the, the real Barney, like it was some NASA spacesuit or something. And uh, there are all these restrictions on when you could see it and examine it, and uh, you know, yeah, things called the 12B6 motion where you could examine the evidence and all that. And so they wouldn't let me see it uh, except under certain conditions. So I got pissed off, and I so I subpoenaed Barney to the trial, <laughs> and uh, and you know, I, I wasn't sure whether the judge would go for it, but. We stood up and they, the, the Barney lawyers were arguing that the, the they shouldn't be compelled to bring Barney to the trial and so they, when they were making the argument they said there are only a few of these these uh, Barney uh, they, they didn't even call it a costume they just said uh, uh, there, there are only three Barneys in the, in, in the country and uh, some are on tour and all this stuff the others does the TV show and and then it, and then they went too far by saying, uh, you know, your honor, and the, the costume is just, or not the costume. They said, Barney is so big, and, and, and it'd be so difficult to get into the courtroom. And the judge said, well, how big is Barney? And he said, well, he's uh, 6'8", and it, and it weighs uh, weighs about 250 pounds. And I stood up, and I said, your honor, I'm 6'8", and I weigh about 240. I got in here just fine. <laughs> and the judge ordered, after I said that, the judge ordered Barney to the trial. And uh, it almost backfired on me, because they, the they brought... They brought uh, uh, Barney in to the, to the loading dock of the federal courthouse in Charlotte in a panel truck and opened the thing up. And then Barney pops out uh, in you know, full costume and, uh, and every courthouse employee was down there and, and most of them had their kids with them. <laughs> and i was like i'm not sure this is this is good for the judge to be seeing this how popular this thing is and then we've got costumes that look just like it that they're running out and people are using it for birthday parties and all that so i was hoping it wouldn't backfire but we wound up winning a trial and then and then it got rolled back a little bit on appeal but it was it was quite a uh, quite an experience
0: yeah i'm so glad i asked about it thank you i've that's that's the that's the laugh i needed um so i i i appreciate it um Well, Jay Billis, I I can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, This was really a a personal thrill for me, being able to talk a little bit of basketball and golf and whatnot with you. And and I I thank you very much. And, um, you know, best of luck and be safe. And uh, hopefully see you back on the television with the game of basketball sooner than later.
1: Yeah, looking forward to it. And thanks for having me. I'm a huge fan. Really, really appreciate being with you.